Acts 13, 1 through 12. Acts 13, 1 to 12. <clears throat> now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. More than meets the eye, Hasbro Toy Company in the early 80s bought a toy line from a lesser toy company that became one of its all-time best sellers. And just by that tagline that went along with this toy line, you may know exactly, especially if you're a child of the 80s, what toy line I'm talking about. But if that doesn't get it, then this toy line became so well known that all you need to do is hear one sound and you'll know exactly what this toy line is. Luke's going to play that for us. Try it again, see if it... Any ideas? Any any guesses? Transformers, right? And some of you are still lost and you're like, I have no idea. But that's Transformers, folks. I mean, that that sound, I don't know how many times playing with toys in my room, I made that sound. I mean, that was one of the main things about having those toys was just to make that sound. I would do it now, but I've been sick and there'd be spit and stuff all over the place and it wouldn't be wouldn't be a pretty picture. Transformers, more than meets the eye. Transformers, these are robots in disguise. Well, this morning, as we come to our passage, there, there aren't Transformers here. Optimus Prime is not going to make an appearance. But what, as I studied through this passage this week, what I kept finding is this reality that there is way more here than meets the eye. There is way more here than meets the eye. And I hope to see that in three specific ways as we walk through this text in First Corinthians, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 13. 
starting there in verse 1. And right at the beginning of Acts 13, starting in verse 1, we, we read, Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and then we have Simeon, who is also called Niger, which is um, the Latin word meaning black, so perhaps this man was also from North Africa, like, like uh, Lucius from Cyrene. That is obviously North Africa. And Menaean, who's a lifelong friend of Herod Tetrarch. And then we also have Saul. Now, before we go any further, what we need to see here, and we've, we've, we've seen this by Luke already, but we haven't stopped and kind of parked on it, but we want to do it this morning, is that we've seen something significant happen. What we have here is a reference to a local church. Luke has used this expression already of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, And now we have here, in Antioch, we have a local church. Now, now this is significant, and it may not seem significant, but as we come into the book of Acts, huge things are happening that we've seen. So if we went all the way back to Acts chapter 2, we'd be reminded of the day of Pentecost. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, signifying the, the establishment of this new covenant as the Spirit is poured out, the church age is launched and the church universal starts. Okay? Now, I know that might seem kind of crazy talking about church universal, but the church universal, we use that term universal, so you might just think church with a capital C, is everyone who had faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost and everyone who's believed in Christ since then through all ages, anywhere on the planet, they are all part of the church universal. Right? We are all part of one body. Paul will go on to say this. That we're all part of one body. We have one faith. We have one Lord. We have one baptism. Right? We are all part of one universal church. And it's a glorious thing. And we see that as the, as the book of Acts is developing. Every single person who comes to faith in Christ, they don't believe different gospels. They don't become a part of a different body. They all become part of one capital C church. And yet, this church universal always ends up manifesting itself, displaying itself in the local church. Which are gatherings of these called out ones, these believers in these areas coming together to worship, to fellowship, to observe believers' baptism and communion together in the local church. So, church universal, everyone who's placed their faith in Christ, stretching all the way back from the day of Pentecost, all the way till now. Right now, you and I are a part of the church universal. We are a part of the, the church that covers the entire globe. People of all different ethnicities, from different cultures, living in different places, speaking in different languages. And yet, we are a part of the local church. Now, this, this is really significant because this happened not out of the planning of people, but out of the design of God. Right? This was not um, an idea that the apostles had where they said, hey, here's what we should do. We should start little clubs. We should all get together. We should have badges or, I don't know, some kind of greeting and we should meet together. No, just like the Spirit of God was in full control on the day of Pentecost to come and to anoint all of those believers and launch the church universal, so it is God's plan and His design 
that that universal church show up in manifestations of local churches. The local church is God's idea. Not ours. It's His. It's a natural outflow of the universal church. Now, I know I'm stopping. We take time with that. And some of you are going, well, yeah, I know that. Right? I mean, I'm sitting here in a local church this morning. (laughs) Don't I already know that? But it's important for us to remember. In fact, I have found as one who grew up in the church, I mean, raised in the church nursery, went through all of the Sunday school classes and Awanas and all of these things, that, that there was an aspect of it for me, which I just thought this is what we do. This is what particularly Christians in America do. This is just, well, it's been so important for me to understand the church is not a, an American idea. It's, it's God's idea. And the, the local church was not just something my dad forced me to go to to ruin my Sundays. It's God's idea. And we see it naturally happening as the Spirit of God works. Now, I think that's particularly important for us to remember in our day and time when, folks, we, we've seen it happen. Since COVID took place, attendance in churches and local churches has drastically dropped away. And there are many people who have decided that engagement and involvement in a local church is insignificant. That maybe there's this possibility to just say, I'm connected to the church universal. Isn't that just good enough? I'll be connected to the universal church and not be engaged in the local church. And what I would say as I read the book of Acts is that's a very inconsistent thing to do. It's inconsistent because this is the way the Spirit of God works. That as people become by grace through faith part of the church universal, what they end up doing is gathering together in manifestations of that universal church, which is the local church. It's the local church. This morning, I want to encourage you all to to have confidence because the local church is more than meets the eye. The local church is no one person's idea. It's not something that that Peter came up with or any of the other apostles. Paul didn't come up with it. This idea of us gathering together to fellowship with one another, to worship together, to, to observe communion and believers' baptism, yet this is God's idea. And for all of the weaknesses that the church may have and for all of the ways that it has faltered throughout history, the local church is God's plan. It's His idea. So I would go so far as to say if you want to be involved in what God is doing, if you want to be involved in what the Spirit of God is doing, then you will be involved, meaningfully committed and involved in a local church. The local church is not a place for spectators. It's not a place to just come and observe and and then walk away. No, the, the local church is a place to be invested and involved and committed to. If you want to be a part of what God is doing, be a part of a local church. Committed, engaged, involved. We're going to see this continue. This pattern that we see here is a pattern that's going to continue. It's not going to change as the gospel spreads, as the church universal grows, it is going to consistently show up in local churches being birthed all throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. 
That's an important thing for us to see and to be reminded of and even to be encouraged that the local church is God's idea. It's way more than meets the eye. In fact, when we think about it, we think about this local church in this huge metropolitan city of Antioch. To them, this gathering of people would have seemed totally insignificant and silly. I mean, think of all of the other religions that were around. They had fancy feasts and festivals and rituals, and they had fancy priests and religious men and all kinds of ceremonies and this kind of stuff. Some of them had ornate temples and all this fanfare that went into them. What is this local church thing? They don't, they don't have a temple. They just meet in people's homes. What? I mean, their fanciest rituals are what? You just take water anywhere and you, you dunk somebody in it and you pull them back up and that's baptism and then you take bread and some wine and you, you, you break it together and you, you, you talk about Christ's broken body and blood poured out. I mean, that, that's, as, that's as fancy as it gets. And, and really the thing that you seem to not be able to get over is this Jesus guy. That, that's your whole focus, right? I can only imagine in this context and in there in Antioch how insignificant this little group. Remember back in chapter 11, we find out that in Antioch they first started to call them Christians. It was a type of, uh, of insult to them. They didn't have some big temple. They're just gathering in homes. They, they don't even share the same ethnicity. So, so what is it that, that this group seems to be all a fuss about? Well, the only thing that we can see is that they're all about this Christ guy, this Messiah. So we'll call them the Christ group. As kind of a flippant way, almost a write-off. This Christ group, so insignificant. And yet, and yet, this is the hand of God at work. I mean, we could go back and we, we could see in Acts chapter 11 that it's only because of a mighty work of God's hand that this church in Antioch exists we would be reminded of the fact that all God did in Jerusalem to establish a church there and then use persecution to launch that church out and then work in the hearts of His people so that they stop just preaching the Gospel to other Jews, but also preach it to Gentiles and then save this headstrong, stubborn guy named Saul so that there would be an apostle ready to go to the Gentiles and then get the church ready there in Jerusalem to understand, okay, the gospel is supposed to go to the Gentiles and begin to wrap their minds around that. All so that we can get to this place in Acts 13 where we have another local church, Jew and Gentile mix. In the world's eyes, it would seem totally insignificant. But in God's plan, this was incredibly significant. And I would argue that across the globe, even today, the local church... The local church is a mighty work of God's hand and has a way more significant impact than we might imagine. Now, if you've studied the book of Acts, of course, you know, you're like, whoa, the church in Antioch. I mean, we know what they're going to do, right? They're going to be those who send out Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to be so big and so instrumental. But they had no idea that was going to happen. They're just this gathering of people meeting together Seemingly insignificant, but way, way more than meets the eye. Now, before we move on from that, I do just want to highlight this beautiful reality that Luke seems to want us to see again here 
at the beginning of Acts 13, and it is the diversity of this church. This church is distinctly different from the church in Jerusalem. Right? The church in Jerusalem was predominantly Jews. Why? Because Jerusalem was predominantly Jew, Jewish. And so that church reflected its context. This church, however, reflects its context. In this diverse metropolitan area, we see this beautiful diversity in this church that in a wonderful and unique way highlights the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's no other reason for these people to be together. There's diversity of, of ethnicity. There's diversity of, uh, of social status. It mentions Menea, who is a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which probably means he was a person of, of quite high status. It means that basically they shared the same nurse as babies. And so th- this, th- there is great diversity in this church. And the only reason that they're together is because of the mighty hand of God that has worked to save them. It highlights the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ that does not require a certain uh, economic status. It doesn't require a certain gender. It doesn't require a certain age so that it can be believed and one can come to faith in Christ. It's a wonderful reflection of the kingdom of God in which there will be people from every tongue and tribe and nation who are a part this diversity here is God-established diversity. It, 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 it's, it's not just diversity for diversity's sake. It's God-established diversity that is a beautiful example of the gospel. So while they are there, verse 2 tells us this, this church that, that is meeting together, these prophets and teachers, I don't think the list here is intended for us to try to figure out who's prophets and who's teachers or those things. It may be that each one of them in this list is both. It says that, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Beginning of verse 4 says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So here we have this local church gathered. And I think verse 2 um, Luke kind of gets us here with his pronouns because he just says, while they. So who's the they? Well, I think that the they are the leaders that he's just mentioned in verse 1. The reason, one of the reasons that I think that as opposed to the whole church gathered together is because of the word that he uses there for worship is a unique word used often in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to speak to the function of the priest. When they were doing their roles, when they were carrying out their duties, this word was used of them that they were worshiping. I imagine what Luke is picturing here, because he also talks about them fasting, is that the leaders are gathered together praying over the congregation, fasting and seeking the Lord. And it's as they are praying and fasting that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, Luke wants to be abundantly clear here that in this local church that's way more than meets the eye, that it's not, that's God's design, the local church, God's design, that it is the Holy Spirit who is responsible for calling and for sending Barnabas and Saul. You see that? He, he, he repeats it just in this short, short few verses here. It's the Holy Spirit who said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. 
right? And then again in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. This was not, and I think sometimes we can get this wrong when we think about Paul as the great first missionary and the church in Antioch as this great sending church. Those things are true, but it wasn't Paul who was sitting around going, you know what, I think what we need to do is we need to, we need to go on a missions trip. That's what we need to do. It wasn't Barnabas who was thinking that way. It wasn't the church in Antioch who came up with this idea and said, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to launch into a missions work. No. The mission, the calling, it, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who established this, this, this mission, this work, this, this evangelistic campaign, if you will, that Barnabas and Saul are, are going to, to head out on. It's, he's the one who established the timing of it, the work itself, and the people who were to be involved. This is why when we consider the mission of the local church, that the mission of the local church is also way more than meets the eye. The posture of these leaders as we see them here is a posture of dependence. Rather than them sitting around strategically planning, trying to figure out everything, what, what do we see them doing? They're fasting. They're praying. They're seeking God. They're dependent upon Him. They're waiting for Him to direct them, to give to them guidance. And then once the Holy Spirit has given them clear guidance, this laying on of hands in verse 3 is, is, is not a, a transferring of any kind of power. It's rather a saying that we are supportive of what God has already ordained. We are behind. We are with what God has established and what He has ordained. And so they send them off. You see that at the end of verse 3. But it was the Holy Spirit who sent them out. The mission of the church is way more than meets the eye because the mission of the local church is not something that, that we have decided, that we have established, but it's something that was ordained and established by God. The Holy Spirit was the one who calls Barnabas, who calls Saul. It's the Holy Spirit who says to the church to send them out. And so the church responds by sending them out. You're probably tired of hearing Acts 1.8. But remember, this all going all the way back to the beginning of Acts, this, this was not the disciples' idea. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and say, hey guys, I'm going to leave soon. And then Peter said, hey, I got this idea. Since you're leaving, maybe we should travel around and tell people about you. No. What did he say? He said, no, you are going to be my witnesses. And here how, here's how it's going to happen. You're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and then you are going to be my witnesses. Both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was always God's plan. It was always His design. Missions has always been God's design, His plan, His mission to which He has called His church. It's not the church's idea. It's not the church's endeavor. It is God's endeavor to which He has enrolled the church and specifically the local church to be involved in His cause of mission. And that's why he's established it in this way that as he so clearly said, you're going to be my witnesses. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to be 
person to person, life on life. You're going to go and you're going to testify about me. And then as people come to faith, they're going to continue to testify about me. And this is the way it's going to go. I am absolutely convinced that by now, if the missions endeavor was a human endeavor, we would have tried a bajillion different ways to do it way more effectively and efficiently. We would have found some way. Let's put up a bunch of billboards. Let's create a hashtag. Let's try to make Jesus a, a an influencer on social media. I mean, there's got to be a better way to do this than just life on life, proclamation of the gospel, life on life discipleship. But this is what God has ordained. This is the way He established it. So here, as we get ready to launch out on this this significant mission, it seems totally insignificant. Now again, if we've studied the book of Acts, we know where this is going. And we're like, oh man, that guy Paul, man, he's going to, wow, you know, hey. They didn't know that. And the way that Luke writes this, it's another pivotal moment because throughout the book of Acts, what have we seen? We saw people waiting in prayer at the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes. Very significant moment. Another moment that, that Luke draws us into people praying is Cornelius and his conversion. Another hugely significant moment in the book of Acts. And now here again in chapter 13, Luke is signaling us to something by saying people are fasting, people are praying, something huge and significant is going to happen. So you're all revved up for it. Here it comes. Two guys get sent out. Okay, well, did they at least run through a banner like a football team or something on their way? Was there at least smoke or fog machines? Pyrotechnics, something? It seems incredibly insignificant. And from a human perspective, it absolutely was. But can you believe this? That you just, just, just consider this. Israel is in Egypt for 430 years to multiply there before God delivers them out. Sorry to ruin that. For, we're going to study Exodus. I just anyway, just forget I said that. 430 years. In A.D. 313, the Emperor Constantine would issue the Edict of Milan to grant Christianity, along with other religions, legal status in the Roman Empire. I mean, at this point, Christianity is just this weird thing. There's a church in Jerusalem. There's a church here in, in, in Antioch and a few other scattered churches that are happening. But it's a nothing. Nobody knows what to do with these people. It's just this weird thing. And by 8313, the emperor of Rome is acknowledging Christianity as an official religion. And by 380 AD, Christianity is made the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I'm not saying that was a good idea, but I am saying something significant transpired in a very short period of time where these small gatherings of churches, this insignificant movement was, was so empowered and moved with such impact and influence that it swept throughout the Roman Empire. And it's absolutely revolutionized the world. It can be difficult for us to understand it because we live in a world 
We've grown up in a world, we've grown up, particularly if we've grown up in America, we've grown up in a culture that has such underpinnings of the transforming work of Christianity that, that we don't recognize how amazing it is that this seemingly incredibly simplistic movement would come to absolutely revolutionize the world. The author Tom Holland wrote the book uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now he's not even a believer, but as he studied history, he is just profoundly overwhelmed by the the fact that, that Christianity, this thing that started with such humble beginnings, has had such transforming power and continues to be a dominant revolutionary fact across the globe. I mean, we sit here this morning knowing that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, that while we gather in a local church here this morning, that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ on every continent on this globe who have either already met or who are going to meet. And who are going to sing songs and who are going to look into the same Scriptures, and who are going to pray together, and who are going to worship together and fellowship together, it is absolutely extraordinary. And it wasn't because Paul and Barnabas were such amazing guys. It wasn't because the church in Antioch came up with this amazing idea. Hey, let's send out missionaries. It was because the Spirit of God called these people out because the mission of the local church is God's mission and it is way more than meets the eye. So Baraka, praise God for the wonderful heritage that we have here of having missions as one of our distinctives. Be reminded, maybe humbled a little bit, we didn't come up with that idea. It's God's idea. We don't have a missions team and support missionaries because we had a grand idea. How about we do missions? No, we were studying the Word of God and and as faithful brothers and sisters looked at God's Word and what He's doing, said, hey, this needs to be a big part of what we're doing. And our engagement and involvement in missions is not because of of any thought in, in confidence in man, but rather in an understanding that this is the mission of God, and it is way more than meets the eye. Even as we find in the mission and in, in the missions movement, the church of the West diminishing. Brothers and sisters, can I just tell you, do not be discouraged that the church in the West, as it seems to diminish, is reflective of the church global, but that we have brothers and sisters in Christ from all different countries and all different ethnicities who are rising up from South America and from Africa and from Asia who are rising up, that the missions force going out into the world, we as Westerners are largely being replaced by other brothers and sisters in Christ who are going into some of the hardest places on the planet and faithfully preaching the gospel. How did that happen? Because we had some fancy strategic planning meeting No, because this mission is God's mission. It's way more than meets the eye, and He is going to accomplish it. He is going to accomplish it through the power and work of His Spirit. Okay, well now I know we spent all this time, and you're going, man, we've made it through what? uh, Four and a half verses? This is scary. But now we come to this, this showdown, right? Paul and Barnabas are sent out, 
and they go to Seleucia, which was a port city. They sail from there to Cyprus. Now, uh, part of the reason I, I, I mention this maybe as an evangelistic campaign, particularly at the beginning, is because Barnabas is from Cyprus. And we know that there were there was a church already in Cyprus. And so they're, they're going, and they don't go, at least Luke doesn't record, that they go to be a part of the church there, but rather, verse 5 says, when they arrived in Salmis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. We're going to see this as a pattern that they follow where they start in the synagogues. They go to where these Jews would gather and read Scripture and worship together. And there they would preach, proclaim the Word of God. We find out that John, this is John Mark, was there as an assistant. We don't know exactly what his role was, but it was a support role. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so so uh, Salmis is on the east coast, Paphos is way over towards the west coast, they travel along, not saying they went every single place they possibly could, but as they travel along, they proclaim the gospel and they come to Paphos. This is another pattern that we'll see in, in these missionary journeys is that they're going to hit these major cities or towns and that's where their focus will be. They get to Paphos and they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. So we know three things about this guy. He's a Jew, he's a magician, and he's a false prophet. And his name means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So proconsuls, as I understand it, were used in areas that there wasn't a lot of conflict, so there wasn't need for Roman soldiers to be around or to have a heavy presence. And so proconsuls were used in those areas to rule and to administer uh, the reign of Rome. Luke adds that he was an intelligent man. I don't know if he tells us that just to help us think uh, he wasn't just gullible and, and, and hoodwinked by this Bar-Jesus guy. But he summons Barnabas and Saul for he wanted to hear the word of God. Right? So, so we're, we're missing details here, but it seems as though verse 8 is going to describe this summoning. That Sergius Paulus, this Gentile, this, this Roman official, has summoned Paul or Saul and Barnabas and he wants to hear the word of God. He's, he's heard about it and he's interested in hearing more. And so it seems at that meeting, verse 8 is describing what happens at that meeting. But Elmas, the magician, for that is what his name means, and there's uh, some uh, wrestlings there with what exactly Luke is saying, because as I mentioned, Bar Jesus uh, means son of Jesus, and Elmas is the idea of perhaps wise or that kind of thing. The point is that he was opposed to them, and he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 9 says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, this is the great moment of Luke changing over from calling using Saul's Jewish name to using his Gentile name, says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So what Luke is describing to us is a showdown of sorts. Right? He's described Bar-Jesus as a false prophet. As a magician, and when he uses the term magician, don't think of some guy in a, you know, a tuxedo who's pulling rabbits out of a hat and using props to try to trick people. Magicians throughout the book of Acts seem to be people who possess some type of power. They maybe even had uh, demonic influences behind them. We're going to see this throughout. We saw it in Samaria with Peter. That there was this guy who wants to buy the Holy Spirit. He recognizes this power. We're going to see it later on in Ephesus where there's these, these demonic influences and the burning of these magic books and these types of things that happen as the gospel expands there. But we have this false prophet in Bar-Jesus 
who says that he has truth, who, who is giving counsel to the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and, and so he's setting himself up, and now we have Saul, whose name is Paul, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. We have, as it were, prophet on prophet. What we have here is like an Old Testament showdown of false prophets against the true prophet of God. And he looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Now, remember back at Saul's conversion, we mentioned the fact this guy's a little fiery. He's not ashamed of this conflict. He's not like some of us who in this conflict we'd be looking at the ground, trying to avoid it. No, he's, he's locked his eyes on this guy and his first words are to take this guy's name son of Jesus, and say, that shouldn't be your name. Here's your name. You're a son of the devil. Wow. Okay. With an introduction like that, where are you going to go? You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, the idea is of a con man, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now behold, The hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And we have our last of our miracles of judgment in the book of Acts. We've had two others, Ananias and Sapphira, and at the end of chapter 12 we had Herod. Right? And this is the first miracle that we see the Apostle Paul perform. This miracle of judgment. Why is it that Paul here is so fiery? Why is it that he would be so blunt? You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Is Paul personally offended? Is Paul taking this as a personal attack and showdown? No. Luke makes clear in this context that why Paul is standing so firmly against this is this is a matter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a matter of someone who is standing in the way of others hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and in no way at all will Paul back down from that. He will not give any space to someone who is turning people away from the truth that is found in Jesus Christ and saying there's other truth, better truth, different truth. No, Paul stands adamantly against that. Makes no excuses. Does not back down at all. But again, notice that this isn't, this isn't about Paul. He doesn't say, my hand is upon you, so I'm going to beat you down. No, what does he say? He says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And it's the Lord's judgment that's falling on you. And so what happens? He's blinded, graciously, only for a period of time. But this blinding, what is it to show? It's to show the darkness that was inside of this false prophet is now covering his own eyes. That the one who said, no, don't listen to them, turn away this way, I will guide you. Now, what happens? He needs to be guided. Because he's darkness. It's what was in him. And now it's being exposed. There's great power here. I mean, we're told in, in verse 12 that, that, uh, that the proconsul here believed when he saw what had occurred. This had an impact on him. 
Now, he doesn't believe because of the miracle. He believes because of the teaching of the Lord. Luke makes that clear. But this had an impact. There is a greater power. No matter what was behind this magician, no matter what wisdom it is that he thought he had, no matter what influence perhaps from Near East religions, maybe it was astrology, maybe it was uh, the, the, the worship of the dead and thinking he could connect with them, no matter what perhaps demonic influence was behind him, the power of the Holy Spirit that was in the Apostle Paul was greater. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. And so he stands with boldness in the face of this man who would turn others away from the gospel and he boldly brings down this judgment upon him. Now, this is descriptive for us. We're not here having an example to follow, right? I don't want you to go out this week and find somebody who says Jesus Christ isn't Lord and you try to blind them, okay? Please don't, don't do that. But what we do have that is prescriptive for us, which is the way that I think we are learning from an example for us to follow is an uncompromising stance with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To stand firm on this reality, folks, if we compromise on the gospel, then we don't have anything else we don't if if paul here compromises on the gospel what's the point of the mission if paul compromises on the gospel what's the point of the local church if paul compromises on the gospel here and says no it's okay we can turn away there might be another option what's the point it's all done it's finished So he stands firm here, stands firm and makes clear, no, this is the only truth, the only way, the only life. It's found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. It wasn't a mean thing today to to do. It was the right thing to do. Now here's this beautiful thing that's happening and a beautiful power that's being displayed in the backstory. As you read this, does it sound vaguely familiar to you? Can you perhaps remember a guy in the book of Acts who we heard about who was a man of, uh, of position, of status? And he just happened, instead of leading people to Christ, was making crooked the straight way of the Lord? Who was trying adamantly to turn people away from Christ? Do you remember a guy like that? Do you remember a guy that as he was pursuing that, trying to keep people from the Lord, maybe headed to a place called Damascus, trying to keep people from the Lord, that he just happened to be stopped in his tracks by not a prophet of the Lord, but by the Lord himself. And he was blinded and had to be led away because he couldn't see. For the Apostle Paul, this is, this is way more than just something theoretical. It's, it's not just some, some theology that's outside of him. This is deep within him. The Gospel is what had transformed Paul. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is what had changed him. It's the, it's the only reason he was in Antioch. The only reason that he had received this calling that is now is living out by the gracious hand of God. Isn't this beautiful? Here is this guy, this Jew, who is so adamantly against Jesus, who is dragging people to prison, 
trying to turn them away. And now, now he has been chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's been called out of the church of Antioch, sent out by the Holy Spirit. And now what is he doing? He's standing up to a fellow Jew. Why? So that a Gentile might hear the gospel. Isn't it beautiful? It's the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for this apostle, this wasn't just something that he was called to. It was something that he lived and breathed. It was his own testimony. And so he would not, dare not, compromise it. But stood boldly in the face of this false prophet. Stands against him. And then verse 12 makes very clear that then they teach this word of the Lord to the proconsul who believes. Who believes? Friends, the power of the local church is way more than meets the eye. Our power is not in our ingenuity. It is not in us being clever. Our power is in the Holy Spirit. Our power is in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And so as we go out, we proclaim with boldness the Gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting the Spirit of God to work in the hearts and lives of those who are lost, that He would grant them faith, they would believe, and they would turn to the Lord. And so we boldly proclaim, way, 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 way later on, the Apostle John would write to a church and he would say to them in 1 John chapter 4, talking again about false teachers and prophets, listen, they're going to be around, but listen, listen, listen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater. That's why we march forward with confidence. That's why Paul preaches this gospel. That's why he stands in the face of this false prophet. That's why he stands in the face of this magician. Because the one that was in him was greater than he that was in the world. And we see that work happen as people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged as you leave this place that the local church is more than meets the eye. And the mission of the local church is more than meets the eye. And the power of the local church is more than meets the eye. And as you leave this place uncompromising about the proclamation of Jesus Christ, because it is the way God decided it would be, that His people would share their faith in Jesus Christ, declare Christ to others, that He is still mighty and able to save. And that as you encounter those who would stand against. May you not crumble in fear. The truth that was in Paul was greater, if you will, than the false truth that was in Bar-Jesus. The power that was in Paul was greater than the false power that was in Bar-Jesus. And so it is true for every single one of us who are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to be afraid that you'll go out proclaiming Jesus Christ only to find some philosophy, some theory, some invention, some, some new thing that, that, that will bring it all crashing down. Some other truth that's a truer truth than that of Christ. You won't find it. You will not come in contact with some power greater than the power of God who is at work within you. You won't find it. March forward boldly proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ.
Well, we'll see this mission continue as we continue in Acts chapter 13 and see all that the Lord has. But what a joy to be reminded that things that seem so simple, a simple local church, a simple mission, and two simple men be sent out is actually way more than meets the eye. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the wonder and the beauty of the local church. We thank you for the mission that you've given to the church. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that empowers the church. Help us, Lord, to see, to, to, to not just look at what's physically around us and, 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 and decide in that way the significance of the church and what you're doing. But, oh, Lord, allow, allow this text Acts 13, the beginning of it, to, to merit it in our minds and in our hearts, to be encouraged and to remember that it is way more than meets the eye. And Lord, grant us opportunities this week as we leave this place to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ. Even if it's in the face of opposition, Lord, may we be confident knowing that the truth that is within us is greater than that which is in the world and the power that is within us is greater than that which is in the world. Not because it comes from us, but because it comes from you. Because your spirit indwells those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And so now we stand, Lord, and we sing to you, our great God, giving you all praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen.